Yes. Good morning, MRCC. Let us enter into a time of worship, of surrender, of gratitude. Can we unite together and lift up praise to our Heavenly Father today? Yes, lay it all down. Come all you weary, come all you thirsty, come to the well that never runs dry. Drink of the water, come and thirst no more, cause he's available, yes. Come all you sinners, come find his mercy, come to the table, he will satisfy. Taste of his goodness, find what you're looking for. Can we lift this up today as this church? Yes, for God so loved the world that he gave us, his one and only son to save us. Whoever believes in him will live forever. Come lay them down at the foot of the cross. Jesus is waiting there with open arms. See his open arms. For God so loved the world that he gave us. His one and only son to save us. Whoever believes in him will live forever. Yeah. 
as we continue to worship would you know that he is here would you approach his heart with gratitude in response to all he is and all he's done we worship you in thankfulness Lord yes grace that flows like a river washing over me fount of heaven love Overflowing. Would you tell him thank you this morning? Thank you, Jesus. You said.
make this our declaration this morning. It will be my joy through the ages to sing of His love for me. Yeah. We're singing how marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. is your promise to him here in this moment I'll stand so I stand with arms high and heart abandoned in awe of the one who gave it all I'll stand my soul to you surrendered all I am is you if you surrender before make this your truth today as I stand it, arms high, heart abandoned, in awe of the one who gave it all. I'll stand my soul, Lord, to you surrendered all I am. He's yours. Would you tell that again from your heart? All I am. All I am. We believe it. Oh, I am. He's yours. Yeah. He's God, not just in part, but the whole. We declare these as words of surrender. All we are is yours. Church, these lyrics are about the posture of our heart in response to what God has done for us. Because we were in awe of Jesus' death and resurrection. We believe everything at his feet. And we may not always be able to have our hands raised in surrender, but we can live our lives in surrender continuously. We need to declare the name of Jesus and submit ourselves to him. Lord, we know that there are times that we fail. Perhaps we don't surrender when we should. Lord, teach us to surrender. We stand in awe of your presence and your glory. And it encourages us as your church to declare God is our King. Continue to encourage us to live lives of surrender and to proclaim this gospel of Christ. We worship you in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, church. There's something magical that happens when God's people come together and unite in surrender of a God that's greater. Amen. Well, hey, welcome to Second Service here at MRCC. It's a good place to be. Would you turn to those around you and make them feel like family this morning? when you drink too much caffeine. It's right there, that's, that's what happens. Amazing, wonderful, fantastic shoes. Amazing, wonderful, fantastic carpet. He just, he bounces around the office sometimes like that too. And we have marks on the walls and ceilings from Josh going through. But uh, 
Thanks, Josh. Great to see you. And, and everybody who's joining us online as well in the live stream this morning, we're thrilled to have you with us. You know, I said this a few weeks ago. I just want to say it again. You know, sometimes people will call up or write or email me or text me, whatever, and they'll say, oh, Pastor Greg, we're so sorry we're not there. We're just kind of, we've got people in the household who are health risks, and so on. Please, never feel apologetic. You're us. We'll wait for you. We'll be here. Uh, you might have to move a little further back than you used to sit, but that's all right. Uh, we love you, and uh, you are us, so uh, please don't feel that. It's great to be with you this morning. It's great to have my wife back uh, as well. Thrilled about that. Um, you know, I heard the guy from UW, the main uh, epidemiologist guy, says, this is it. We're landing the plane. We're coming to the end, so hallelujah. Amen. Does that sound good? Somebody say amen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sounds good to me too. Grab your Bible if you would. Open it to Romans chapter 3. We're going to continue our journey together through Romans. We've set ourselves this whole spring to walk all the way through this epistle. There's 16 chapters. We're in chapter 3 this morning. And remember, what we reminded ourselves of is this, that it's God's agenda in my life as my father, as your father. It's his plan in your life to grow you to the place where you receive God's word on its own terms where you, you don't need it pre-digested. You don't need it, you know, uh, pureed for you ahead of time by somebody else. But you begin to be able to receive his word on your own because you've allowed him to bring it to you in, in the context that he sovereignly chose. That's, that's so important. I hope you will get in the habit this spring, if you're not already, uh, of bringing your Bible with you to church, whether it's an old-fashioned one like this or on your phone, on your iPad, whatever works. Uh, but God will meet you as you open your heart to all the context in which he, he speaks to us. And, you know, when we do an expository series like this, one of the really maturing things that we do is we allow God to speak to us about things maybe we wouldn't choose for him to speak to us about, but he in his wisdom knows how we need to be shaped, how we need to learn, and, and all that happens when we receive his word uh, verse by verse. So Romans chapter 3, beginning with verse 1, we're going to go right through the whole chapter uh, this morning, and, and let me begin by saying this, you're probably like me, sometimes I can't be trusted. Anybody ever feel that way? Yeah, I mean it happens to all of us. For example, when Rhonda came home from Africa a couple of weeks ago, I, I think I shared with you, I, I had everything prepared at home. I had the flowers, the candy, the cards, the uh, house all taken care of, everything spick and span, ready to go. I, I had it all planned for her to come home and not have a care in the world. And it worked out until a certain point. She got home, uh, you know, we celebrated, and then I said, she came home in the afternoon, and I said, hey, baby, I don't want you to worry about a thing. I got dinner taken care of tonight. You tell me what you want, anything in the world, I'll make it for you tonight. There was a slight hesitation in her answer, <laughs> but she said, you know, I, what I haven't had in a month in Africa, I haven't had an American breakfast. Can we have breakfast for dinner? You know, eggs, sausage, potatoes, English muffins, all that kind of stuff. I said, you bet. I'm on it. You got it. And so I set out to make dinner uh, for Rhonda. It didn't go well. The first thing that happened was that I got into the fridge and grabbed the eggs, uh, got ready to, or I started uh, breaking them and not realizing the first egg that I broke was actually a hard-boiled egg that she had made for her lunch. And so I thought, oh, ah, throw that in there, she won't know. Grab another one, do it again. That one's hard-boiled, too. On the third egg, I figured out that was the hard-boiled carton, right? And so to put that back in the fridge. So then I grabbed the regular eggs. And, and, you know, we have the little rubber poacher things where you put the poached egg in the rubber thing and it floats in the water. I said, all right, I got this. I've seen Rhonda do this before. So I put the eggs in, but put way too much water in the pan. So when I put it on and it started to heat up, it flooded and drowned all the eggs. And they all went to the bottom. Giant, eggy, watery, bubbly mess. I had to throw it all out, clean out. Get a different pan. I'm thinking perseverance, right? Stick with it. You'll get it. So the next time, I was careful not to put too much water in the pan. But when I went to put the fourth egg in the poaching thing, I spilled it, dumped it on top of everything, and had the same result again. On top of that, I put the English muffins in the toaster, turned it on, but didn't plug it in, which is a problem because the muffins don't cook when you don't plug it in. So things weren't ready on time. Now I've got to put the sausage in the warmer. I'm just struggling through this thing. And then just to kind of put the, the icing on the cake, I poured the milk. And while she was gone, the milk went bad in the fridge, went past his date, and I didn't pick it. So it came out kind of lumpy, if you know what I mean. <laughs> 
Rhonda looked at me and said, why don't I make dinner tonight? <laughs> and so she did. Sometimes I can't be trusted. <laughs> but even though I can't always be trusted, here's, here's what keeps happening in my life. People keep trusting me anyway. <laughs> Have you noticed this about your life? Even though I, I, I mess up, people keep trusting me anyway. I remember when I was uh, 19 years old, I was home on recruiting duty from, uh, from Camp Pendleton. And they would send you home for 30 days because you were still young enough to be connected with the high school students and so on. And so you'd spend four weeks recruiting. It was kind of a free leave thing, uh, free time off, uh, at least to be home. And, and so I'm home on this recruiting duty. There's about a half dozen of us uh, in this recruiting office downtown. And one Saturday morning, we're getting ready for everything to get started. And, and the, the staff sergeant who was in charge of our, our recruiting office had the most amazing car. Everybody was jealous. It was a 1971 Corvette LZ Special Edition. 425 horsepower, fellas. <laughs> it was beautiful. It was hot. And all the guys were bugging him to let them drive it. And the staff sergeant was saying, no way, it's not going to happen. Nobody drives my baby. Nobody's going to drive my car. You can talk all you want. It's not going to happen. They're nagging him and going at it all morning. We go to work. We come back at lunchtime, and, and, and we're getting ready for lunch, and they're at him again. Come on, let me drive it at lunch. Just let me drive it once. Just let me drive it around the block. He's like, no way. Nobody is ever driving my baby. Then he did something I'll never forget. He said, hey, lunch is on me today. It's a place about six blocks down the road. Greg... Why don't you go pick up lunch for us? And he tossed me the keys. I was like, were you aiming for somebody else? You know, I, I never even dared to ask him because I knew it wasn't going to happen. And he tossed me the keys to his Corvette. I said, I'm looking like, what? He goes, yeah, go pick us up lunch. All the other guys are looking, hey, what are you know? I'm like, what's going on here? Is it a joke? Is somebody doing something to me? He goes, no, go pick up. Have you ever driven a car with 425 horsepower? I went like 20 miles an hour for six blocks. <laughs> if you just touch the pedal, that thing wants to climb over the car in front of you, you know, and, and the steering wheel was super tight. I was like, ah, and I went down there and I got lunch and I brought it back and the whole time I'm just amazed. He let me drive his car. And it was, it was such a moment for me that after lunch was over and guys were kind of scattering, I, I pulled him aside and said, Staff Sergeant, why would you let me drive? I mean, you didn't let any of those other guys drive. Some of those guys 10, 15 years older than me, and, and yet you let me drive your baby. <laughs> Why is that? He said, well, it's real simple, Greg. They were all trying to get me to trust them, and you weren't. That's what made the difference. He said, that's how I knew I could trust you. Now, I, I share that story for this reason. In Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul is going to say that when we try to create our own righteousness, we're doomed to fail because God knows us better than we know ourselves. But it's when we humble ourselves to receive righteousness from Him, that is where and when and how righteousness happens. You remember that the, the letter to the church at Rome is a letter the apostle wrote to a church he never visited. Every other book in your New Testament is a, a letter written to a church that Paul had spent years with teaching. So he just makes references to what he taught. Here in Romans, we have what he taught. The gospel from A to Z. And in chapter 3, verse 1, he starts to get intense about the nature of this gospel. Listen, let's listen to what he says. Chapter 3, verse 1, uh, and we'll move through the chapter together in the next 20 minutes or so. Paul says, What advantage then is there in being a Jew? You remember last week at the end of chapter 2, he said, Hey, it doesn't matter if you're Jewish or Gentile. What matters is what's going on inside of you. It doesn't matter if you jump through the hoops on the outside. The reality is what's inside of you. And so having made that implicit, explicit, then Paul says, Well, he, he answers an imaginary question. What advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value in circumcision, going through those hoops? He says much in every way. And then he says the two ways. First of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. We'll come back to that in a moment. 
And then he says, what if some did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every man a liar, as is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. Now, this is, this is some complex stuff. Paul is engaging with an imaginary objector. He is speaking to his fellow Jews. He's speaking to religious people in all times and seasons who would go back and forth with him about the significance of, of doing the Jewish stuff. And Paul says there is an advantage, but we tend to misunderstand that advantage. In fact, the Jews did. He says, what advantage is there in being a Jew? Much in every way. They have been entrusted with the very words of God. In other words, the advantage of being Jewish is the fact that they have been invited to be God's partners in what he's doing in the world. Take this in for a moment. Because the Jews tended to think of themselves, hey, we're better than everybody else. That's why God picked us. God says, no, that was never the case. I chose you not to be more privileged, but I invited you to be my partners in what I'm doing in the world. See, God's plan for Israel from the beginning was to use Israel to tell the truth about him to the whole world. So what they were invited into was a rich partnership with God. Think of how you feel when, when someone who, who you admire, who you look up to in terms of their skill and ability, invites you to work with them. Hey, come and do this with me. You feel ennobled. You feel privileged. Like, wow, I get to be a part of that. That's the idea here of the advantage of Jewishness. I remember when I worked in the emergency room, uh, I wanted really hard to get the right to work there. And once I did, and it was intimidating, I got past that, then it was more demanding than all the stuff that I had gotten before. And, you know, humanly speaking, you would tend to say, well, I want to do the least amount of work for the most amount of money. But that's actually not true. What came from working in the ER was this privilege of being involved in what the doctors and nurses were doing on the front, front line. And it was that privilege that kept me committed there. It's the same idea here. The advantage of being Jewish is that God has invited you to partner with him. It's the same thing for us today. The advantage in being a Christian, because a lot of stuff is asked of us, but the advantage is that we get to be partners with God, with our Father, in what he's doing in the world. And that kind of partnership is always more rewarding in the end. Your soul really doesn't want to do the least amount of work for the great amount of money. It wants to do what matters. That's what you crave. And the advantage in being Jewish is the Jews were invited into it. That advantage by extension comes to us. We have been invited to be partners with God. Now, Paul moves past that point. Oh, oh never, never mistake God's choosing for entitlement. That's important to grasp. When God chooses you, it's because he wants to involve you in something ultimately rewarding. It's way different than entitlement. Now, Paul goes on and asks another rhetorical question. What if some did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Paul says, that's not at all the case. God is always true to his word. His veracity doesn't depend on our believing in him. That's important because there's a, an idea among the pagan religions that's still around today that somehow God derives his power from our worship or our assent, from our involvement with him. Nothing could be further from the case. Paul says God's going to do his thing no matter what. He doesn't need us to verify him. He doesn't need us to validate him. He's invited us into this partnership, but he's doing what he's doing, and our lack of faith won't nullify his agenda. The other angle on this is the imaginary uh, person he's arguing with says, well, God be unfaithful to his promises to Israel because Israel wasn't faithful to him. Paul says, no, of course not. But he's going to go on to chapter 9 of Romans and say not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. It's those who have the faith of Abraham. And he just said in chapter 2, it's not those who do Jewish stuff. It's those who are devoted to God on the inside and then out of that do Jewish stuff. Those are my people. So Paul is saying that his, God's faithfulness trumps all. But our experience of it might be different than that. If I can paint a picture, you know, I'll always love my son and call him my son. That's never going to change. But he may separate himself from his experience of my love by what he chooses to do or not do. If he becomes a murderer and ends up in prison, my love for him remains, but his experience of my love for him will change. Same thing happened to Israel. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Bible says God called all Israel into the desert, but a lot of them died there. They cut themselves off from their experience of his love. 
they didn't enter into the promised land. So that's the idea here. And then Paul moves beyond that. Look at verses 5 to 8. And he engages in, this is one of the most complex passages you're, you're, you're going to encounter in Romans. He engages with an imaginary arguer again who wants to argue that ceremonial Jewishness, outward Jewishness, is the measure of godliness. And that the Jews accused Jesus because he preached a gospel of grace of being unconcerned about sin. Sometimes we wrestle with that same idea. And Paul wants to, to deal with both those ideas. So he says, verse 5, he says, If our unrighteousness, our sin, brings out God's righteousness, his grace, more clearly, what shall we say, that God is unjust in bringing his wrath upon us? And then Paul, in quotation, I'm using a human argument. He's, this is imaginary. He says, certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness, if my sin enables God to show his grace and so increases his glory, then why am I still condemned? That, that warped line of thinking is easy to arrive at when you think of righteousness as a thing you create or earn for yourself. And that's where the Jews were. Paul says, why not say as we are slanderously reported as saying, as we are accused of saying, uh, let us do evil that good may result. Their condemnation is deserved. Now, see, here's the thing. Jesus goes along and gives grace to a tax collector and a prostitute and a sinner and a, a Peter who betrays him to his face and a, a Mary Magdalene, who, uh, you know, who has spent a lifetime living outside the body. He gives his grace to all these people. And the Jews said, well, if you give grace like that, then sin doesn't matter. In fact, sin is just an opportunity for you to give grace. And the early Christians were accused of that exact attitude. Now, Here's where the mistake in that line of thinking lies, and here's what Paul is pointing to. When we think of our salvation, our righteousness, as an administrative reality, we can end up at this place. But the truth is that it is an intensely personal thing. God isn't stamping my passport to heaven. God doesn't, in Christ, file my paperwork so that I have a room reserved in the Father's house. There is no sense in which salvation is administrative. What salvation is, is relational. When I get saved, I become a child of God. Now I am involved with God in an ongoing relationship, like a good father, a great father, the best possible father, with a son, with a daughter. Salvation is intensely personal, and we need to understand this, or we will tend to believe that we have to achieve A, B, C, D, E level of righteousness on our own and thereby cut ourselves off from the reality. This is intense and technical, but it is everyday stuff that goes on Monday through Friday in our lives. We are always falling into the trap of looking in the mirror and saying, asking ourselves, am I righteous? But the gospel says righteousness is a thing God gives you don't achieve. You aren't righteous because you did the right things. You're righteous because you let him give you his righteousness. Let me share a story with you to illustrate how sideways this can go. Many years ago, late on a Friday night, I sat in my office at another church that we serve. I sat in my office with a man and a woman, middle-aged. I'm going to call him Tom, not his name. And they were there, her weeping brokenly. Because for the 15th, 16th, 17th time, her husband had been involved in an affair with another woman. Not the first time, not the second time, not the fifth time, not the tenth time. This had been going on every couple of years throughout their marriage. Again and again and again it happened. Again and again and again she forgave him and endeavored to restore the marriage and here it is happening again. She's broken. She's crushed. Her heart is torn. She's weeping uncontrollably. He's in an angry rage. In fact, he's the one who asked to meet with me. You know why? Pastor Greg, tell my wife it's her job to forgive me. That's the Christian gospel. He's angry at her because she hasn't forgiven him yet. I said, Tom, are you kidding? Do you, do you think she owes you forgiveness? Yes, she does. That's the Christian way. I said, Tom, she doesn't owe you forgiveness. 
She doesn't owe you anything. Matter of fact, she's perfectly entitled to walk away from this relationship and get on with her life. You have broken this covenant repeatedly in the most you know, hurtful way imaginable, with the exception maybe of physical abuse. This is awful. Tom, she doesn't owe you forgiveness. Yes, she does. No, she doesn't, Tom. And I said, furthermore, Tom, God doesn't owe you forgiveness. Yes, he does. God owes it to me. If I ask him for it, he has to give it. I said, Tom, you need to read your Bible, bro, because that is not what it says. And we engage in this argument. Can you imagine? He's in a rage at her because she won't forgive him for the 20th time of violating their marriage. Finally, Tom gets mad at me because I won't tell her to forgive him. And, and then he says this. He says, well, if that's the case, and he stands up. He says, I'm going out in my car, put my gun in my mouth, and blow my head off. Little secret, little aside. That's what we call manipulative behavior, in case you're wondering, all right? And I knew that. So I said, well, Tom, if you do that, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to call the cops. They're going to come clean up the mess. I'm going to go home, play with my son, sleep like a baby, just so you know. He needed to hear that. Because he was so deceived, his salvation had become an administrative thing. Buttons pushed, papers filed, hoops jumped through, we're good to go. Now, the, the good thing is, the end of the story is, by the end of our time together that evening, Tom was confessing that he was wrong. That God didn't owe him anything. That his wife certainly didn't owe him another chance. She may choose to give it, but she didn't know. That's what happens when we think of our salvation administrator. We get into that kind of madness. Sometimes we think of God as an admin rather than a father. And when we do that, we turn his grace into a free pass. But it's not a get-out-of-jail-free card. Grace is an invitation to be fathered. It is an invitation to be fathered. It's personal, and its power lies in the fact that it's not a rule or a law or a hoop or an agenda. It's personal. If I could uh, illustrate this for us for a moment. Pastor Dave, I don't know if, if everybody knows this, but Pastor Dave, for most of his life, is a, a, a high-end drywall guy. He did uh, residential and commercial construction, and he became so good at his work with, with finishing that, uh, you know, he was highly sought after, and uh, he, he left that career to become a pastor some years ago, but that's what he did before. And um, he, he got wind a few years ago that I had a, a hole in my wall, actually. Uh, Isaiah and I were wrestling, this is 10, 15 years ago, and, and uh, we bashed into the wall and damaged the drywall, and uh, he heard about it. He says, hey, Pastor Greg, I'll come, I can come over and take care of that for you. I was like, oh, really, Dave? And that was when I found out he was a drywall guy. He said, yeah, 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 I do this. And I'm actually awesome at it, he said, you know. So, <laughs> no, he didn't say that, but um, I learned that afterwards. So he, uh, he comes over to the house, and he does this. And I'm like, wow, that's just, man, thank you, Dave. That's awesome. How much do I owe you? He said, you don't owe me anything. Come on, I just, we're friends. I'm just doing that for you as a buddy. And, and by the way, this is not an invitation for you to text or call Pastor Dave. <laughs> But he says, no, no, no. And I said, no, let me pay you. I got to pay you. What, do I, what, what, what would you get for this, you know, if you're doing it on a job site? He says, no, I don't want it. And we're going back and forth. And he says, hey, if you pay me, it's not personal. You know, I'm just doing this for you as a friend. That's how God comes to us about salvation. We say, God, I need to pay you. God, I need to pay to make this right. You can't. And if you try, you actually defeat the purpose. He's done it for you because he loves you. Now, I walked away from that humbled. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to ask Dave to do that all for me all the time. Matter of fact, I'm not even going to bring it up. If Dave brings it up, I might say, okay, this is, I'm doing a thing here. But uh, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm totally kidding. Um, but you get the point. See, see, that's what salvation is. That's what Paul wants us to understand. That grace doesn't mean anything goes. And here's a big deal. Here, here's a big thing. Grace means that we have traded a law for a Lord. Okay? Now, the Ten Commandments, the Bible tells us, are a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ, Galatians chapter 4. In other words, their purpose is to show us that we've broken the law. God didn't give the Ten Commandments thinking you and I could keep them. He gave them wanting us to keep them, but he gave them knowing that they would shine a spotlight on our own shortcomings so that we would know that we don't keep God's commandments. See, our tendency is to make up our own standards and then call them God's. He says, no, 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 here's the real standards. 
And Jesus said, it's not just what you do with your hand, it's what you do with your heart, remember? And, you know, the whole thing there. But the point is to lead us to Christ. Grace means we exchange a law for a Lord. Now, here's the beautiful thing about that exchange. A law can't be merciful. You break it, you pay the price. You break it, you're done. A Lord can. A Lord can also ask me much more than the law does. A Lord can say, you know, Greg, I don't just want you to jump through these hoops. I want all of you. I want your whole life, your whole heart. I want every part of you. I want to invade every relationship in your world. He can also be incredibly merciful and forgiving when we fail, but he can also ask a lot more of us. That's what the gospel does for us. We exchange a lawful Lord. That's sometimes hard for us to understand in our modern context because our nation is built on laws and we think of them as the highest thing. What's the most important thing in the land? It's the Constitution. Well, okay, in our human context. But there's no Constitution in heaven. God's a sovereign king. What he says is law. We don't debate it. We don't discuss it. We don't vote on it. <laughs> he says, here it is. Boom, done deal. No discussion. A Lord like that can show me mercy. And he can also ask more of me than a law can. And that's what's happened in Christ. Sometimes we say, God, just tell me what to do and I'll do it. But that's not true. <laughs> it's not true. G.K. Chesterton said, no man knows how bad he is until he's tried really hard to be good. <laughs> and most of us never will. Paul says, hey, understand that the, the idea that we'll do whatever God tells us if he'll just say it audibly or in the sky is a misunderstanding. The whole story of Israel is God manifesting himself in massive supernatural ways and Israel not doing what he says. After we go around that barrel about 50 times, God says, well, I knew that was going to happen all along. That's why we're going to do the cross. That's why we're going to have a new covenant. That's why Christ, my son, is going to come and go to the cross. And Paul points our attention to that. Look at verses 9 to 18 of chapter 3. We're, we're running out of time this morning. But Paul says, what shall we conclude then? Are we any better, those of us who have the law? Not at all. We've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. And it's true. It's the fact. As it is written, there's no one righteous. Now, Paul's going to quote a whole bunch of prophetic verses and psalms and proverbs in kind of a string. It's called stringing pearls. It's an old way of preaching. Paul says, there's no one righteous, not even one. No one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They've together become worthless. No one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice disease. Kind of a self-esteem moment here in the service if you want. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. The way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. You say, well, that's not me. God says, by my standards it is. Your standards may excuse you, but mine don't. <laughs> From my angle, knowing what I know, knowing you the way I know you, Greg, this is the truth about you in and of yourself. See, his standards are so much higher than ours. And all we've got to do is run the video of our lives by his standards, and it's obvious that we've fallen far short of who and what we should be. So the Bible says in Numbers chapter 32, you may be sure your sin will find you out. Yeah. In January, 6th, in January of 2013, deputies were called to the Cassatt County store in Cassatt, South Carolina to investigate a burglary. Someone had broken in, broke into the cash register of the safe, stole a bunch of stuff, vandalized and ransacked the store, uh, got away with about $2,500. But in the process, the burglar had also stolen a jumbo family-sized bag of Cheetos and tore a little hole in one corner of the bag. Police arrived to investigate the crime, and one of the deputies noticed a trail of Cheetos out the store, down the sidewalk, and he said to his partner, we should follow this. About six blocks right up to the porch of the place where the burglar lived. And they knocked on the door, and he answered the door with the bag in his hand and the money on the coffee table. It was the easiest case to solve in history. We laugh, but God says, Greg, that's how it is with your life. You've left a trail of Cheetos. Your sin is real. It's there. You've broken my standards. Knowing they have sinned, 
most people attempt to justify themselves by then comparing themselves to others. Well, I'm not as bad as so-so. I'm better than so-so. I'm in the upper percentile. I'm not as bad as this bunch. That, that's the human tendency. That's what the Jews were doing. Police in Rome a few years ago, since we're on the subject of burglaries, arrested a burglar who protested and said, I'm not a thief. I only steal from people who can afford to be robbed. You should arrest the burglars who steal from people who can't afford. He had invented his own law, compared himself to others, and let himself off the hook. God said it doesn't work like that. First of all, he doesn't compare us to one another because he's a father. He knows some of us struggle more in some areas, some in others. So he doesn't compare us. He fathers us. He doesn't say, hey, Greg, as long as you're in the upper 20th percentile of the administrative aggregate of human beings in integrity and honesty and mercy and justice, that's good enough. He didn't say that. Instead, he says, as Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. You ever wondered if you have righteousness of your own? Measure yourself by that standard. That's the standard. You heard about the, uh, the volcano in the South Pacific a couple of weeks ago? Uh, I read a story about a man by the name of Lisala Folau. An older man, a widower, he, uh, fiercely independent. His family says that, you know, you can never help him, he won't let you help him. Uh, on the day of the volcano eruption, he had gone out to one of the outer islands where he had a, a little home, and he was out there working on and painting it. Uh, several of his sons had offered to help him, but now I can do it myself. I don't need any help. I'm independent. On this particular day, he discovered that wasn't the case <laughs> because the volcano went off and Lisala actually noticed when he looked out to sea and saw a 49-foot tsunami coming towards the six-foot-high island <laughs> where his house was. He did something that didn't surprise his family. He thought, well, I, I can handle this, so he climbed a tree. <laughs> thought, I'll just ride it out. Well... The tsunami was higher than the tree. And the next thing you know, Lusala found himself floating in the open ocean behind a tsunami all by himself, all land underwater as far as he could. He spent 26 hours floating out there. As grace would have it, he was rescued. But he did say afterwards, yeah, partway through that, I realized this was something I couldn't handle on my own. <laughs> I need help. God's be ye perfect is a 49-foot tsunami that is supposed to help you and me know, I need help. I need a righteousness that doesn't come from me. And the good news is that's exactly what God offers us. See, here's, here's where we go into the home stretch this morning. We're almost done. See, the truth is that God's standards, as high as they are, his standards are not the last word about him. They're the second to last word. The last word about him is that he's a savior. That he comes to save those who don't meet his standards. Paul goes on to emphasize this. Verses 19 and 20, he says, We know that whatever the law says, God's standards, it says to those under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. God gives you his commandments so that you'll know you're a sinner, so that I will know I have fallen short. Out of that, then, I go to him in the only heart-spirit attitude that allows me to receive his grace. You know, in our house, Ron and I have a, a division of housekeeping responsibilities. She works full-time as well, so, so we divide everything up, and we've kind of made an arrangement. I, I'm not a huge fan of dishes, so she does the dishes. She hates doing laundry, so I do the laundry. Sometimes I can have an attitude about doing the laundry. I'll be doing it, and I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm on it. I get on it every time. But I'll do it, and she'll come walking down the hall, and she'll look at the ways that I've separated the piles of laundry, and she'll say, no, that should be there. You don't wash that with that. And me, being the sinner that I am, <laughs> I usually respond with this. If you want to do the laundry, you can do the laundry. <laughs> if I'm doing the laundry, I'm doing it my way. That was, my, that was my attitude. And that was, hey, division of responsibilities. So it's kind of a guy way to do things, right? Don't get in each other's business. And then there was the time that she said that. I didn't do it. And all my underwear came out pink. <laughs> and I said to myself, I need to change. <laughs> Go humbly to her and ask her what goes with what. And I learned how to do that. In the same way, God says, you need to come to me. 
because some of the stuff you're doing is wrong and bad. And I'm a father, and you come to me acknowledging that, and I meet you in it, and I save you from pink underwear. You can quote me on that. <laughs> I will save you from pink underwear. And then Paul says, here's where we finish. In verse 21, friends, theologians, scholars will tell you, this is the most revolutionary verse in the Bible. Okay? Listen to what the apostle says. But now, okay, all fall short. Nobody's righteous. Nobody can get righteous on their own. But now a righteousness from God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. It's not new. It's old. It's as old as the Bible. You'll find it in Genesis. But it's a righteousness from God. Verse 22. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. A righteousness from God. In other words, not one that I create, not one that I manufacture, not one that I summon up, not one that I achieve. One He gives me. Like my staff sergeant gave me the keys to his Corvette. Not because I had proved my driving ability. Not because I had proved my responsibility or my maturity. I assure you I had not. But he gave it to me from his heart because he saw in me a glimmer of the right spirit. I wasn't trying to get him to trust me. Friends, that's the gospel. You and I will be forever tempted to look in the mirror and say, have I done enough? Have I achieved enough? God, have I been obedient enough? God, have I been good enough? That's the road to disaster. Does he want you to be good? Absolutely. But it begins, the transformation begins when your mind is renewed to know that the gospel is a righteousness from God that he gives to us because we're willing to receive it. That's a big deal. He says it comes through the redemption, through the sacrifice of atonement and faith in his blood, verse 25. That's where we don't have time to get into this this morning. That's a reference to the fact that the whole Old Testament system, the entire Old Covenant, was set up to give us insight into the heart of God. Hebrews chapter 6 through 10 explains this in detail. It calls the law and the Old Covenant a shadow of the reality which is in Christ. What does that mean? Well, in the same way that, that the person you love most, their face reveals their soul to you, right? You're talking with them. You see what's going on in their face. You know what's going on in their heart. In the same way, the Old Covenant is the face of God's soul. Through it, we learn sin is bad, standards high. We can't reach them, but he loves us. We learn all that. But we don't worship the face. We worship the soul revealed through the face. And the gospel is where we trade a law for a Lord. The cross, Paul says, this is where we're finished. I know I keep saying that, but this is where we're finished. Verses 25 to 26. I really, okay, I'm done. Verse 20, I, catch it. He did this, the whole cross thing, to demonstrate, the keyword, his justice. Because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand. Raise your hand if any of your sins have not been punished yet. But he doesn't want me to think they don't matter. So he, he made a demonstration. The cross is a demonstration. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be both just and the one who justifies. See, here's what you want to understand about God. He wants in your life to be, as a father, both just and the one who justifies. Years ago when Isaiah was in middle school, he mouthed off to his teacher. It was totally inappropriate. As a consequence, I get a call from the principal of the school. <laughs> hey, Mr. Dalton, you need to come down with your son. We're going to sit down and talk with his teacher. We need to have a confrontation about what your son did. <sighs> so I go down to this meeting, and Isaiah's in class. He's called in, you know, to this. When I went to it, there were two things on my heart when I went to that meeting. One was, I want my son to know that's completely unacceptable. You can't talk to an adult like that. You can't talk to a teacher like that. You can't talk to anybody like that. What you said was wrong. And I want you to know that and feel that. I am not okay with it. <laughs> That's what I wanted. The other side of me wanted him to be redeemed and rescued and learn and grow, become more mature, understand why it matters, get beyond it, become a person who will never do that again. I went with both those things in my heart. 
That's how God comes to us, with both those things in his heart. He says, I want to be just. You need to know wrong is wrong, bad is bad, sin is sin, but, but, but I want to justify you because you're my son, you're my daughter. I want to be both just and the one who justifies. How does that happen? It happens when Isaiah in that meeting says, Dad, I was wrong. Miss whoever, I'm sorry. Mr. Principal, I apologize. I won't do that again. Yeah. Just and the one who justifies. Win. That's what God is doing in our lives. And, and, and here's the thing. It's a personal thing, friends. It's a personal thing. When I went to that meeting that day, I didn't want Isaiah to sign a card or sing a song or, you know, do some hoop. I wanted to look me in the eye. Look them in the eye. Say, I was wrong. I'm sorry. I'm going to learn. I'm not going to do it again. That's what I wanted. That's what God seeks in us. He seeks it personally. He seeks you personally. I didn't go to anybody else's kids' meetings like that. But I went to my son's meeting like that. I finished with this. Rhonda has on her desk, if you go into her office, a picture. Like a lot of people have a picture on her desk. The frame of the picture on her desk is made of about 12 or 16 popsicle sticks glued together crookedly. And then the frame is covered with mismatched buttons glued on to the front. And it's a picture of Isaiah when he's about four or five and he made it in children's church and brought it home like on Mother's Day to give to mom. It's horrific. <laughs> you don't want it. You wouldn't pay a penny for it. You wouldn't. It's totally worthless to you. And totally precious to her. It will be on her desk forever. Why? Because it's personal. And your salvation is personal to God. It's personal. That's the gospel. When you understand that, we are transformed. You are transformed. I am transformed. Would you bow your head, close your eyes. God, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that, that you want to be both just and the one who justifies in our lives. Oh, God, how awesome is that? How amazing is that? We thank you for that. God, teach us not to try to create our own righteousness, but to receive yours to receive what you give us through faith in Christ. Maybe as you sit here this morning, you've never received Jesus as your Savior. You've always tried to, to make yourself good enough. It's, it's a fool's errand, God says. The standard's too high. But God is seeking you. God wants you as his daughter, his son. And it happens in the moment you simply confess to him that you fall short receive his son as your savior. The Bible says to as many as received him to those who believed in his name he gave the right to become children of God to be adopted to be personally made a daughter or a son. That can happen for you right now right here. God hears your heart you simply say to him yeah I've fallen short I need a savior. In that moment he becomes one. He becomes yours personally. Maybe you did that a long time ago, but somewhere along the line, you started thinking it's about how much righteousness you can come up with on your own. God wants to remind you it's his grace by which you stand. And to remember that when he confronts you, when he tells you this is wrong or bad, it's because he loves you. It's because you're his. You need to remember that so you'll find the courage to repent again. And be fathered. Lord, we, we thank you for your faithfulness to us, for your goodness. And we pray that as we go from here today, it would be with the knowledge that you choose us personally. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me, friends? Yeah. You don't have to stand at home. You can remain sitting, whatever works for you there. But yeah, it's personal. Now may the love of God the Father, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of his Holy Spirit go with you throughout this week. Go with God. Tell someone you love them. Have a great afternoon.